Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 1, as we read earlier from verse 12, we'll read the rest of the chapter here in a few seconds, but just let me ask you this is do you hold the conviction that God is able to do what he has promised to do? It's an important question to answer because as we read in Timothy, 2 Timothy, there's a moment in Paul's ministry when he was imprisoned, when he was in chains, and his friends had deserted him because he was in chains. If you look down in verses 15 and following, you'll see these two fellows named Phygelus and Hermogenes, and they, uh, they left Paul when he faced persecution and when he was arrested and things got hard. They took off and deserted him. Um, and then there's another fellow by the name of Onesiphorus, and he was one who refreshed Paul, and he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. But when times like that come, and people desert you because you stand with the gospel, will you be like Paul, who was not embarrassed by the gospel, or not ashamed of the gospel, but stood firm on the promise of God, and that God would do as he said he would? Or would you be more like the two guys that left Paul, deserted him in his time of need? And as you read 2 Timothy, you get the sense that Perhaps Timothy is on the verge of deserting Paul as well. And so Paul is writing him again to encourage him. And he encourages Timothy by giving him this timely message. Fan into flame the gift of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share in the suffering for the gospel. Hold on to the gospel and the sound teaching that you have heard. So I invite you to follow along in chapter 1, starting in verse 3, as I read down to verse 14. Paul writes, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, and as I, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was, also, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted 
to you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word, as we've heard this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to hear, open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through your word. Father, what we do not know, it is my prayer, as always, that you would teach us what we are not yet, um, Lord, that you would make us, and Father, what we do not have, that you would provide for us, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, amen. So first, Paul says, Timothy, you've got to guard against spiritual atrophy. Atrophy, you know what atrophy is? Atrophy is the gradual decline uh, in effectiveness um, due to underuse or neglect. So if you are one who has worked out in the past, and by working out I mean you, you do cardiovascular workouts, you do physical strength workouts, conditioning, and your body was once a prime specimen for any sport that you could throw at it, and then you quit training, what happens? Your muscles atrophy, right? You quit training them, and so they lose their, their, their strength. They lose their endurance. Same thing can happen to us spiritually when we fail to fan into flame the gift of God to those who are followers of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. And so he began this second letter to Timothy. Timothy now is a seasoned pastor, reminding him, Timothy, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for this relationship that we have, for his partner in the ministry. Paul viewed Timothy as his own son. Um, but he's saying, listen, Timothy, there's coming this time, and perhaps it now is, where you are going to uh, want to shrink back. You are going to be overcome, perhaps, with fear. And you've got to resist that. Paul reminded Timothy of his heritage of faith, the heritage of faith that had been passed on to him from his family. It is essential that you do not make the mistake of thinking that your faith in Christ or your salvation happens because your grandmother or your mother or your daddy or your gramps was a believer. You're not a believer because they were a believer. You're a believer because God has individually called you and you responded in faith. We don't inherit salvation from our family. We can be raised in the church. We hear it all the time, so it might appear that way. But Eunice and Lois, no doubt, brought Timothy up in the way. But Timothy had to make a decision at some point to respond in faith and follow Christ. Christ Jesus deals with each one of us individually. So dad and mom, grandparents, you are instructed to raise your children in the gospel. You don't let them run the house. You don't let them run your calendar. You make the gospel a priority in your home, especially when it comes to the local church. You are able to disciple your children. Look at Timothy. Mother, grandmother, both influenced him. That's the heritage part of the story, and that's another sermon. But the bigger picture, what we find here is verses six and seven where Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, you've had this faith, it's here. Your grandmother, your mother taught the gospel to you. They, they brought it to you. You believe, you have that deep faith heritage of your family, but listen, there's something more important here, Timothy. I am reminding you because of that, of the gift of God that is in you, and that you need and you must fan the flame. Fan into flame the gift of God. Now, if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, there Paul reminded 
Timothy, Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have. So this must have been an issue for Timothy. Either he ignored it or somehow was tempted to neglect it or was not using or maybe trying ministry in his own strength and his own power. Whatever the case is, Paul's reminding him, Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. The gift of God, which is in you, Timothy, is the Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ Jesus in faith, God provides us with the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that there would be a helper that would come at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see that come to fruition. The Holy Spirit comes, and it is a gift that we have. And now the Holy Spirit is the one who gifts us with grace to minister. Even so, we can become apathetic, and we can let atrophy set in, and it will take you down. And you can get to a place where you are walking in fear rather than walking in the spirit of power, love, and self-control, which is also a gift in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So if we are in that place and we are getting atrophied, we are becoming useless, uh, we're, we're not exercising our faith because we're neglecting this gift that is in us, we must be aware this is written for us. Fan into flame the gift of God. Paul commanded him. Fan it into flame. It's present tense, which means it's not just once a week and Sunday or once a month or once a year or twice a year, however often we come. We think it happens in this hour, but it says keep fanning. It's present tense. Keep on fanning into flame this gift. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit is dying out or fading in us? Absolutely not. It may and never will be. It is not that the Spirit's flame is weak. It's not that the Spirit needs to be stoked by human effort. Rather, it is the Spirit who works in cooperation with men and women who desire His presence and work in their life. He's not going to force Himself on you. The disciples were praying in the upper room. Yes, they were waiting. They were praying because Jesus told them to go pray. So they were praying, and the Holy Spirit came when they were praying, when they were asking for the presence of God. He came. And here, again, Paul is saying, you've got to keep fanning. You've got to keep working and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. So we fan the flame when we do what Paul told the Galatians. He said this, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we're living and keeping in step with the Spirit, guess what we're doing? Fanning the flame of the gift of God that he has given us. And you won't know the Spirit of God unless you're spending time in prayer and in the Word of God. These things are vitally linked together. And so Paul, understanding our tendency when we don't fan into flame, when we aren't working and exercising our faith, we have a tendency to drift. We have a tendency to drift theologically. We have a tendency to drift convictionally, which then changes how we live and leads us into atrophy. And he told the Philippians, don't be anxious. It's almost like he's writing Paul. It's not a spirit of fear that you've been given. Don't be anxious. But through prayer or by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Then, he says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It is that peace of God which I can't explain because it surpasses my understanding, 
but it is that peace of God that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ. Why do we need to be guarded? Because we have a tendency to drift. We have a tendency to go off course. We have a tendency to stumble and fall. Paul understood that our heart and our mind, that is the center of our being. And what comes out of the mouth, Jesus would teach, first comes from the heart. So if our heart and our mind are drifting, our convictions change, our service will drift. The gospel message will change. Not the gospel from scripture, but the message we're preaching. And when we drift, we get apathetic. The fan is turned off. We lose sight of the Holy Spirit's presence and work. And God is not glorified in our life. And that is when the spirit of fear kicks in. The spirit of fear which leads us to believe that the world is right and that God is wrong. And everything that God has promised is fake news. The Greek here in verse 7, for God is... For God gave us a spirit not of fear. That, that Greek there, that it, it refers to someone who runs from battle. Not to battle, but from battle. They flee. And in some places, it even refers strongly to cowardice. But the spirit of fear leads us to be ashamed of the gospel. Paul will write very clearly in Ephesians chapter six that we do not wage war against flesh and blood but against all kinds of different powers and principalities, things that are not seen, spiritual warfare. We cannot flee. We cannot run. We got to stand and fight. And that's what Paul is saying, Timothy, Don't run. Don't desert me. For God has not given you, Timothy, a spirit of fear. Church, he has not given you a spirit of fear, but he has given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. That is the counterpunch to the spirit of fear. Our natural tendency is is the spirit of fear, but the real presence of the Holy Spirit, whereby he brings in to his church, his people, the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline or self-control. Those things are supernatural because they're not our natural tendency. Our natural tendency would be the opposite, which would be fear, living in sin. But power, which means he enables us to do what God has called us to and requires of us as followers of Christ. It's his power, not our power. I'm not, I'm not here this morning in our response time to somewhere find the power within me to make this all right. That doesn't come from me. That's his gift to me through the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He also gives a spirit of love, which means now I can love my brother the way that God loves the Son, the way the Son loves the church. Now I can love you the way that he loves. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that puts others' interests before my own, the selfless love, is a love expressed to God as we express it to others. Then he gives us the spirit of self-control or self-discipline. Sometimes I just want to like act that out, right? Self-control. Sometimes I feel like that's what it is around my house. Self-discipline, self-control. But this is simply careful, disciplined thinking. That when we come into a, a, a time like Paul is in prison, he's in chains, Boy, that would be a very easy situation to slip into fear, to slip into depression, to slip into all kinds of places that are not godly. 
slip into darkness. But self-discipline, self-control, careful disciplined thinking, remembering the promises of God, thinking clearly with truth and the wisdom that God gives us in his word. And Paul continues his thought that in light of the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides in you, follower of Christ, and that by the Spirit of God you walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel by the power, love, and self-control that he gives, then Timothy, he says, do not be ashamed of the gospel. We guard against atrophy. We also second guard against shame. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, which is the gospel. What would he be ashamed of? Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Well, to many in Timothy's day, as we find in, uh, in Corinth, where Paul wrote to the church there twice, many would find in his day religious worldviews, strong competing religious worldviews, because Ephesus was not an easy location. But there were people who would have thought this message of the gospel, what, what is it that a Messiah would come and die? That doesn't make any sense. Why would your, why would your hero die? None of their gods would ever do that, right? They would come and conquer man and rule them with an iron fist. This grace and mercy, that doesn't make any sense. This is foolishness, is what many people would think when they heard that gospel message. And the more you get rejected, the more you get persecuted, the more you begin to think, wow, this message is weird. This doesn't make sense. I, there, that sense of shame comes. But he says, don't be ashamed of our Lord. Friends, we today still have a tendency to be ashamed of this message. Because we still live in a world, and we will always live in a world until Christ comes back, where there are multiple competing religious worldviews. The one we perhaps wrestle against the most is the American worldview, which says, do good, feel good, whatever you want. Believe in a God if you want or not. But if you do believe in a God, believe in one that you've created which could have made the universe or didn't, what does it matter? He's not intimately involved in our life, so who cares? And when you die, there, heaven's waiting for you because God needed another angel. But don't die young, because if you die young, your God obviously made a mistake. I hear it all the time, all the time. But the idea that the Bible teaches is that there is none who are righteous. No, not one. Friend, that's old. It's outdated. It's ignorant. It's foolish. It's bigoted. It's what we get told. But Jesus clearly has told us in the Gospel of Mark, whoever is ashamed of me and my words is in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. That's a pretty tough message. That's pretty tough to hear. That's not the warm, fuzzy Jesus I thought I was following. But it's essential, church, that we do not back down from this message. Because our tendency is to, not just, to, to just not say anything. Keep it to myself. It may not be that we live in a, a, a self wicked, self-indulgent life, right? We may just go with the flow. We don't want to make any waves. Live as everyone else does with little to no difference in our ethics, our morals, our positions, our values. 
And ultimately what happens is that when people die, they're going to hell because they never heard the gospel message. And they never believed in Jesus. So Paul reminded Timothy, Timothy, you've got to stand strong, Timothy. You've got to be brave in the face of this persecution. Timothy, don't be afraid and ashamed of Christ Jesus. Again, again, the the context of when Paul is writing, he's in chains. His people are deserting him. So not only is there a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel, but there's also a, a, a tendency to be ashamed of the messenger or be embarrassed by the church or of the church. He says, don't be ashamed of Paul. Don't be ashamed of me. How embarrassing. Many must have thought that Paul would make such a big deal of Jesus and then he's going to get his life. He's going to get himself thrown into prison and beaten and chains for the rest of his life. How silly it must have been. And what happens in the church is when we see brothers and sisters struggling, we start thinking like many of perhaps of his buddies. Wow, he must not have had the spirit like he claimed. His life isn't going the way he thought it would. That's when the health and wealth and prosperity gospel folks have a real tough time struggling with the truth and reality of suffering for the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes about his struggle. He writes about his, his, his personal struggle, his personal weakness. And there he talks about that a messenger of Satan was, had, had been given and, and tormented him in his ministry. And he prayed three times asking God to remove that. And God said, no. What? Why would God do that? I thought God wanted the best for me. He absolutely does. Of course he does. The best is eternal life. It's here. It's coming. He's going to see it through. That's the best. Spending eternity with him. Oh, we get the mansion on the hillside. Oh, eternity is that we get God. We get to be in his presence. That's eternity. That's the glory of it. But here in this life, we're going to struggle. He said, listen. I prayed three times, but God said no. But here's what he did say to me. Verse 9, he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If God had removed that, that torment, if God had removed that, and made Paul's life easy, then where would the power of Christ have been? God said, Paul, I've got a plan. This is the purpose. That pain that you're in, that weakness that you live in, that weakness that you struggle with, it is there so that you understand my grace. Brother, my grace is sufficient for you. It's more than enough because my power is exemplified. My power is made known, is perfect in your weakness, Paul. Because it's not about you, Paul, it's about me. Paul, I want the power of Christ to rest upon you. And so Paul continued to say, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And without that weakness, Paul knew that there's no power of Christ resting upon him. And so Paul embraced and he's trying to pass that on to Timothy. He's trying to instill that as he disciples Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but in share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Why? Why would Paul say that? He would say it if you read verses 9 9 through 12. He says it, which is one really long sentence. He says this. We do this because the gospel is worth it. The gospel is worth it. 
Timothy urged, Paul urged Timothy to, to persevere, to stand, even in the face of suffering, because the gospel is worth it. Here is the gospel. It's the power of God, he says, verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now uh, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. Doubt, fear, leading to theological, convictional drift, apathy, leads us away from thinking that the gospel is worth it. Spiritual atrophy sets in, but even in chains for Paul, he knows and he believes it's all worth it. And he goes on to this extended uh, explanation of the greatness of our God. Timothy, it's all about his grace. It's not about your work or my work or our works. It's not going to get us there. It's all about his grace. And he touches on the greatness of God in the work of salvation. That is, one of, that is the greatest work ever, the work of salvation. From beginning to end, God saved, God calls, God brought death to death and brought life to light. So God saves us, which means he rescues you from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. Then God sanctifies. He calls us to holiness. He is saving you from the power of sin. And then God will glorify. That's eternal life, immortality. To, to, he, he brought that to light through the gospel. It means God's going to save you from the presence of sin. That's why Paul would say, even though he's in chains, he's endured beatings, loneliness, imprisonment, shipwreck, hunger, all of the things, the absolute rejection by those who held him near and dear. That's why he would still say at the end of his life, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He endured because he trusted Christ Jesus fully, completely. You and I are called to endure. You and I are called to persevere to the end until Christ returns. And so that we run our race the way Paul says. In fact, in chapter 4, he'll tell Timothy, you've got to do the same. I'm, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. My time has come. He's at the end of his ministry. And yet still he can say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard that day what has been entrusted to me. Until that day, what has been entrusted to me. Guard against spiritual atrophy, which leads us to being ashamed of the message and the messengers by knowing in whom you have believed. This is, that's his counterpunch to it all. I know, I am convinced in whom I have believed that he is able. He'll tell the Ephesians in the doxology of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, to him who is able. Paul had this, this, this strong conviction that God was able. He knew the stories of the Red Sea. He knew the stories of how God delivered his people. He knew the story and had met the man, Jesus himself, on the road to Damascus and heard him call out to him. He knew what God was capable of. He knew that God had promised to see him through. He was convinced, and he let that conviction lead his life. John Calvin would say this. He said, this is the only refuge of the godly. Whenever the world counts them condemned and without hope, which is how Paul, that's where Paul was. That's what the world thought of him, condemned and without hope. 
It is the only refuge of the godly. It is enough that God approves of them. For what would be the end if they depended upon man? Friends, Paul is speaking from his faith. It's not his opinion, it's faith. Faith doesn't rest on the authority of man, but it rests on God himself. Paul's life had been radically changed. He knew. And when faith rests on God himself, there it will not waver. Trials, tests, struggles, remaining true, centered, steadfast in Christ Jesus, knowing that God has spoken, knowing that God has promised, and that our God does not lie, that he will do all that he had promised. You can say it with Paul, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's kind of weird that Paul would be singing these praises and even in prison, glorifying God even in chains, because by the world's gospel, something's gone drastically wrong. Because the world's gospel is if you're doing good, then you don't deserve punishment. If you're doing good and something like punishment happens, persecution, then something must have gone bad. If you got hardship, then you're guilty of something serious because you're being punished for it, because your life is turned upside down. But when it comes to following Jesus, we must be persuaded that God is going to finish in you what he started when he called you to faith. If you are not persuaded that he is able, then you're no different than the double-minded man who takes a look in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he saw that James talks about. But friends, we have zero reason to be ashamed of the gospel. If you have trusted in Christ and you have tasted salvation in Christ Jesus, then you know you have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Because he is at work. And when our faith is grounded in him, we understand then that the power of God is at work with the word of God and we will see him at work just like Abraham. When God called Abraham, Abraham believed God. And Paul gives this testimony of him. He says, no unbelief made him, that is Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And Paul finishes up in verses 13 and 14 by saying, Timothy, it's time also to guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Guard against atrophy. Guard against shame. But guard the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound words and guard the good deposit that was given to you. Keep it and guard it. What is that? What is that gospel? It is God's character. God's holy character. In the very beginning, he created everything perfect, everything holy, everything set apart for his glory. He put Adam and Eve there in the garden as he created them, instructed them not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, they fell into temptation. They fell into sin by that temptation. Adam took that fruit and he ate it, which introduced the offense of sin. Each one of us offends God when we sin. That sin is still there, and it is still an offense to him, but something had to be done. Something had to be paid. Some kind of penalty had to come in and be offered. And that is where the sufficiency of Christ Jesus comes in, that Christ is all-sufficient. He took our place as the perfect once and for all sacrifice there upon the cross. All of God's wrath was poured out upon him. He didn't stay dead, but God raised him by his power on the third day, that if we would believe in him, 
we would have eternal life. And so there comes the personal response. Each one of us is responsible for responding in faith, trusting that message, trusting in the, in the, in the, in, in the Christ, turning our life over to him, putting all of our eggs into his basket because he's going to carry him. He made it happen. As we have that personal response, not only does it call us to faith, but it also calls us to repentance, meaning we're turning away from that offensive sin. We're turning away from that sin. And as we respond in faith, there is ushered into us eternal life. For everyone who believes will be saved and that God sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And with that beautiful promise of of a glorious future in eternity, there also comes in this life, here and now, a sense of urgency to share that message with those around us, that they too would hear this gospel message. And as we continue to live our life until we die or until Christ returns, we are are going through life transformation, that he is changing us and working in us his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And so we live, we walk, and we trust in God's ability that he will do what he has promised to do. And we don't lose heart as the day is drawing near. And remember that there is always our helper. I get the sense that Timothy must have been discouraged. He must have been hurting at some point. Paul, writing this letter, coming alongside Timothy, his son in the faith, when all the world around Timothy and Paul were deserting them, Timothy could have faltered. He could have stumbled. But Paul knew Timothy had a race to finish. You and I have a race that God has marked out before us in Christ Jesus to finish. And I'll close with this illustration. In 1992, the Olympics were held in Barcelona, Spain. And, of course, as always the case with the Olympics, millions of people tuned in I particularly enjoy uh, the track uh, competitions, but this particular day, there was a British uh, sprinter who's getting ready to run the 400 uh, meter, which is one of the hardest races to go as hard as you can for one lap. Um, I might make it in five minutes today, but um, this guy was certainly um, uh, in 40 seconds. The world's fastest runners. Derek Redmond had tried four years previous to the Barcelona Olympics to run the 400. Just about a minute before the race was to go, he disqualified himself because he felt a tinge in his uh, Achilles tendon. And he knew that if he took off and he ran with that injury, his sprinting career would be absolutely finished. And so he made the decision to disqualify himself and not run. So then, of course, being denied the chance to run, he had to watch his fellow athletes compete from the sidelines. After four years of focused training and some surgeries and rehabbing, Barcelona came around and he was ready. He qualified for the Olympics and he was ready to run his race now more than ever. An official raised the starting gun and squeezed the trigger and all the sprinters took off as that sound cracked through the air and the runners bolted from their starting blocks I'll let you see what happens next. I believe he's in lane number five. Excuse me, lane three. No, 
He's right there in the middle. It's lane five. That's him right there. Every sprinter going down the track as fast as they can, 100 meters in, he, he tore his hamstring. You saw him brush off the help. They were trying to get him off. He was going to finish his race. Along the way, his dad came out of the stands, put his son's arm around him and helped him, still brushing off the Olympic officials who thought this is odd. This is weird. Friends, if you are limping this morning and you are living in a spirit of fear, that is not of God. He has given us a helper to come alongside of us, to live in us. We can limp because of the agony of sin and the damage that it does to our, our heart, our relationships. We can be weary and discouraged, leading us to be ashamed of the gospel, leading us to doubt whether God will fulfill all that he has promised. And when we get in that place, we're going to stumble in our faith. But there in that moment, our Savior comes out of the stands. 
And he comes alongside and he lifts you up. And you can finish your race because he is with you. He is with you. Just one more step. Just one more step. Just one more step. Not only is our Savior with us, but we are to come alongside one another just as Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy, don't be ashamed. One more step, son. One more step. The power of God lives in you, son. He has not given you a spirit of fear. He has given you a spirit of love, power, self-control. Walk in it. Walk in it. For Timothy, he saved you. He's called you. He's empowered you. Walk now, Timothy. Walk, my son, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Timothy, you were restored. You were loved. You have the wisdom and the gentleness as fruits in your life. So, Timothy, finish your race. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus.